0: Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 14, reading the second half of the chapter this week, verses 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. for for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. And Father, we come this morning and we confess our need for help. As we continue to walk through this long letter, we ask God that you give us grace to know what it means to apply your grace to our lives and to the community that we share together. We ask that you would come in all of our weakness and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Many months ago, we entered into this long letter of Romans. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church that was experiencing contentions and difficulties And we saw that over the first 11 chapters that he addresses the problem of human sin, that primal rebellion of human beings against God, their creator, in which we exchanged the truth about God for the lie. And in accepting and embracing the lie, we announced that we were the captain of our own ship, the one who would have the right to define reality, the ones who would be able to determine what was right and wrong, the judge of good and evil, and that we alienated ourselves from God. But despite that predicament and that problem, that's no just small sickness, but rather is a decisive rent in reality in which we alienated and turned ourselves away from God, God has done something on our behalf. We were delivered over to our own sinfulness and to our own devices, but yet God then intervenes and he delivers over his son on our behalf that he might rescue us. And that in Jesus, we are offered a new status that is the status of righteousness before God. We are granted a new freedom as we're called up out of Egypt, out of our own sinful ways. And we're granted the hope of the glory to come of a new heavens and a new earth that will be made fresh and clean, free from the stain and corruption of sin that we've contributed to it. That this is the overwhelming grace of God, an incredibly vertical message in which God is intervening in the world to do something on our behalf. Yet in chapter 12, we see a decisive turn where Paul says, I urge you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And so for the last part of the letter, Paul has not left behind that vertical message of the gospel, but now he is applying it, telling us how to appropriate it and what it means to be a living and holy sacrifice. And so in chapter 13, we discuss the role of love in the Christian life love for our neighbors, love for even our enemies and adversaries, love for ruling and governing authorities. And in chapter 14, Paul addresses a very specific dialed-in issue that was plaguing the Roman church. And it's an issue that happens then and there in history and has particular contours and shapes, but yet it's also an issue, a subject that afflicts the church today, here and now, with its own shapes and contours. And so we entered into this last week, and if you missed that sermon, it will be important to review that, because this is really just an extension of that sermon in which we discuss what it means for the church to live together in the non-essentials, that is, the things that are not equally clear in Scripture, in which there is no mandate from God— And so last week we began this, addressing the first 12 verses. And Paul addressed that contentious situation, addressing two parties, the weak and the strong. This is what he calls them. And he does address some very specific behaviors and attitudes and actions that were going on. But it's critical to remember that what Paul is really after As he speaks to this church, and as he speaks to us today about what it means to offer ourselves as a living and a holy sacrifice, is he's directing us to be stewards of the culture of the gospel in the local church, that we want to pay attention to the culture, or as we said last week, to the soil in which the gospel grows in our local community because there was a dynamic at work in the church that was betraying the gospel. And so let's just review for a moment that historical situation so we can properly understand all the terms, as this chapter can be a confusing one. But in verse 2 of chapter 14, we see that one person believed that he could eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables— And then in verse 5, he mentions that one person esteems one day as better than another, while the other esteems all days alike. And then verse 21, he also explains that one drinks alcohol while the other does not. And so these two parties, they lay out like this. The weak, they are vegetarians, they abstain from alcohol, and they observe certain days. It appears that that weak party was most likely the Jewish Christians who newly had returned to Rome after being exiled from the city for approximately a decade, somewhere around 47 to around 55 to 57. And here they returned to the church with Jewish customs, but yet the church had been under Gentile leadership for most of that decade. And where would these practices come from? It's fairly simple to understand in that first-century context that for the Jewish practices of the Mosaic Law, that meat and wine were particularly associated with idolatrous practices and that in Rome, in a city devoted to Rome and to its system of religion, that any meat that was bought in the supermarket and any wine that would be purchased and consumed that those would be involved in idolatrous worship practices, that they would have been first sacrificed to an idol and then sold. And so many of the Jewish believers thought that it was best to abstain, that these things were not kosher and they could not participate in them. And then we also find them observing calendar of days, days for fasting and days for prayers that were part of the Jewish custom. And so this was the weak party, that Paul addressed. The strong party that he addressed were most likely the Gentile Christians, and they ate meat. They didn't observe the Jewish calendar, the days of fasting and prayer, and they also drank alcohol. These were the Gentile Christian converts. And we saw last week that to the weak, the weak, the party who abstained from certain behaviors, that Paul critiques them for passing judgment on those who did not join them in their practices. That is, those who did not abstain from meat, those who did not abstain from wine, those who did not follow the days of fasting and prayer, that the weak were not to judge those who did not join them. Because what was happening is that those who were abstaining— considered themselves more holy and more righteous. They were being overly scrupulous and they were going beyond what Scripture actually said and they were willing to condemn other people on the basis of their human traditions and rules that they had constructed. They had entered into non-essential matters. They had gone past Scripture. And so Paul doesn't forbid them from practicing these things. But he says that they have no permission from God to judge another believer on the basis of these things. But he doesn't just address the weak. To the strong, he also has a message. That is the one who partakes, the one who doesn't operate by these rules. Paul recognizes that they had grown frustrated with the weak. They had become somewhat exasperated. And you can imagine if these human traditions and rules were being piled up against you, that you may grow impatient with it. And so Paul says that they were not to despise the weak who had set up their scrupulous rules. And so they were not to respond in arrogance to those around them. And friends, what we find here is that in non-essential matters, that the gospel creates and fosters a certain diversity in the church. And this this is what exactly we can expect inside of a Christian community, that there will be diversity on non-essential matters. But it is this very diversity that the gospel creates. We find here in chapter 14 that that diversity also threatens the church's unity. And so this is a complex situation. It's a complex situation there. It's a complex situation now. And so the question for us this morning is what do we do about that complexity? How do we live with that? And how do we protect the culture of the church and keep it in line with the gospel? There's three things that we'll see here in the back half of chapter 14. First... The weak, that is those with scruples and rules, are challenged to change. Verse 13, therefore, do not pass judgment on one another any longer. Last week, we saw that the challenge to pass judgment was specifically directed to the weak party that they were the ones guilty of that, that they were condemning other Christians who were not joining them in their practices. Of course, the problem is, is that the weak did not view themselves as the weak. They perhaps viewed themselves as the strong. But what Paul is saying is that the construction of these rules that went beyond Scripture and put up qualifications and put up rules beyond what God explicitly addressed that this classified them as weak in their faith and practice. But Paul also responds to something important here. He recognized that these Jewish customs didn't just come from nowhere, that these things were difficult for a converted Jew who had grown up in the heart of Judaism. And so they reflected long cultural traditions that had not yet been overcome by the gospel. In that sensitivity that he shows to them, he does continue to press them to deal with all the implications and all the ramifications of the gospel. He wanted them to think in light of Jesus and to reason in light of him in everything. And this is what happens in verse 14, if you follow there. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Here Paul waxes eloquent with a huge statement of theology, that nothing is unclean. Because what Paul saw that these Jewish believers were doing is they were, they were importing the ceremonies of the Old Testament law after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so he understands that these ceremonies are no longer necessary that they're no longer necessary because they've all been fulfilled, that the ceremonies existed to point and direct the Old Testament church to Jesus. But when Jesus comes onto the scene in his advent, and then in his death and resurrection, all of this has been fulfilled. And so it's no longer necessary. And he understands that none of the meat and the drink and all of these things and these practices of prayer that were prescribed by Jewish custom and tradition, that these were not necessary. They have been fulfilled in Jesus. Their purpose has been brought to an end. And so Paul enters into a conversation where he's sensitive to the needs of the weak, but yet he's also challenging them. And he challenges them by reasoning with them from the gospel. He doesn't dismiss them, but he also doesn't completely enable them. He calls them to deal with Jesus and all the implications of his grace. And yet he engages that with a level of pastoral patience when it comes to the non-essentials. Now, several years ago, visitor to our church, he and his family came, and it was obvious that he had had a great deal of theological exposure. I believe he had served as an elder in his previous church. He had newly moved to Jacksonville. And so after the service, he made a beeline for me to to grab me for conversation. He complimented me on the sermon once or twice, and then followed with a litany of concerns. Concerns that started with the broader culture, concerns that then dipped into our particular denomination and to particular church life. He went into specifics that for him defined what it really meant to love and follow God. But there was a problem. In the midst of all the things that he listed, there were a great number of things that I identified with. He was interested in restoring the church's worship. He liked the use of old hymns. He also liked the use of the catechism. He liked expository preaching. All things that I could actually agree with. But he had also elevated certain things that are non-essential. Things in which we perhaps did not have a direct command from God on. And he'd raised them above that non-essential status. And so there was a judgment and a condemnation that was taking place. And so in a very tricky and difficult conversation, and this is what all of us are tasked to do, when someone elevates the non-essentials to the level of essentials, to the level of gospel truth, to make customs and traditions, to be law for the church, and to pass judgment on, the, on other people on the basis of that law, that custom, that tradition. It's essential that we point out, hey, we have certain practices, but we also don't live with a self-righteous spirit here at Christ church. That this is not who we are, that we live with a certain freedom. And yes, we embrace certain practices, but we don't do so with high-handed arrogance and a sense of judgment upon other people. That this is not what we're about. That in non-essential matters, we respect the freedom of believer's conscience. And that the gospel actually doesn't just permit this, but in many ways encourages it. And friends, this is the culture that we have to protect. That the things of first importance— the essentials always remain lifted up and that there is no compromise in those things. But then we have to be hyper aware of our tendency and our nature to go beyond the essentials. That is where we trespass beyond scripture. And we have to be hypersensitive and aware that when we do so, we have no permission from God to do that and that we can't enter into judgment Upon others in non essential matters. And so, this is the first thing that Paul does in protecting the culture of the church here and addressing the complexities. He does challenge the weak. But, second, and most of the passage is devoted to this, that he also strongly addresses this party that he calls the strong, and he tells them and challenges them that they are to accommodate the weak. If you follow with me in verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Skipping down to verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you by what you eat do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And friends, this is the accommodation of the strong to the weak. That the strong are not to respond to the scrupulous rules of the weak with a high-handed arrogance and a dismissal, but rather to recognize those scruples for what they are. We're not to press someone to join us in what we feel that the gospel frees us to engage in. And we're also not to judge them if they don't join us. In fact, Paul will go so far in verse 21 to explain that we will abstain from certain freedoms that we could take up when in the presence of others. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It's critical here to see that Paul considers all these things, these non-essential things, to be secondary and that they're relative, that they're not of ultimate importance, and that the primary thing is that we act in love. Verses 17 and 18, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable, God, and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And so the culture of the strong was to be leavened by this grace and by this humility, that the Christian community and its peace and its prosperity and its goodness, that these were to be the priorities and that the way that the strong were to relate to the weak was to accommodate them not to arrogantly judge and dismiss them. Calvin captures it well. He says, if everything is done in love, all will be safe. And friends, that's the operational rule for us in these non-essential matters, is that when someone finds something objectionable, we don't press them into embracing our particular Position. We don't force them to practice the way we do. That will even accommodate them when in their presence and that will respect their different view of conscience. That will allow for some challenge to take place, but that all of us will recognize and respect that love is the primary thing and that this love is defined by Jesus' love Demonstrated and displayed upon the cross that we put the interest of others ahead of our own. And so, this is how Paul challenges the strong. He is agreeing with them. And then he says, Because you are strong, you can actually lay down some of your freedoms, and everything will be safe. And this leads us to the third part of what Paul says. Because what he now lays out in the final verses, as you get into verses 20 through 23, is that the conscience of everyone on non-essential matters is to be respected. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so Paul here is explicitly recognizing that everyone is not in the same place on these non-essential matters, and that everyone here in these non-essential matters has the freedom to act out of conscience. That blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment, to condemn himself, for what he approves. And yet also conversely, blessed is the one who does not engage in practices in which his conscience is pinched, in which he doesn't believe that he's free to do so. And that we respect that kind of community where there is not judgment from the party of the weak and there is not dismissiveness and arrogance from the party of the strong that the weak should not participate, Paul says, if it doesn't arise from faith, that they have not connected in this ancient context, that faith frees them to engage with meat and the wine, and they didn't need to worry about those things, those scruples of Jewish custom, tradition, even some coming out of Mosaic law, that Jesus had fulfilled this. Friends, it draws us to respect the conscience of believers, disagree with us in non-essential matters, and that we can live in charity. And it is in that charity in which the gospel will continue to work, to bring all to maturity, but we exercise a patience inside of that. And so we don't grow arrogant, and we don't grow judgmental. And it's inside of that system, that diversity of the gospel that the strong can hear the appeal to accommodate the weak and out of love for their brother, so as not to destroy their faith, they don't take up all of their freedoms. And it's in this diversity that everyone receives respect, that each of us are servants of God and that we work out our conscience in relating to God and that we work out our practice and we're happy to allow one another to do so in these non-essential matters. And friends, in our own cultural moment, in our own day and time, it's incredibly important. It's incredibly important for the church to know how to emphasize the essentials, to know where to step on the gas and to not allow any compromise and diversity the things of first importance, the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, the things that scripture makes plain and clear that are necessary for salvation. And yet the whole other load of what the reformers called adiaphora, the non-essentials that were delighted to allow diversity of practice and views and opinions and to allow each to work out that view and practice before God. It's the diversity the gospel creates. It is the culture that is to be stewarded. It's the culture that is to be protected. It's the culture that's to live inside the church that exists for the world. And so protect it, guard it, in its freedom and in all of its beauty. Let's pray. Father, we recognize there's a thousand ways that we mess this up, that we're all prone to exalt non-essential things, to make them essential, to pass judgment, to be arrogant. Help us where we're weak. Correct us and walk with us. That we would walk in strength together as we follow Jesus and all the implications of the gospel. Bind our community together in love. That we would be patient that we would be devoted to upbuilding and encouraging one another, and that righteousness, joy, and peace, the essential character of the kingdom, would live here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.